In episode 79 of Mosin at Large, it's decision time for the United States. Apple does it again with an exciting new accessibility feature exclusive to the iPhone 12 Pro models. More on mobility choices for the future, the new sites that you like, and more. Mosin at Large you're very welcome to contribute to the podcast, and there are two ways to do it. You can drop me an email to Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com. You can write something in that email, or you can attach an audio recording using anything that records and that you can attach to an email. You can also call the listener line. That number is in the United States. It's 864-60-MOSIN, 864-606-6736, and record a message that could be included in the podcast. Concise contributions always help. We can't include everything because of the volume of contributions we receive. And please note that if we do use your content, we reserve the right to edit it for clarity and brevity. You can follow Mosin at Large, all one word, on Twitter to join the conversation with other listeners, to get sneak peeks about what's coming up on the podcast, and I regularly tweet links that I think will be of interest to Mosin at Large listeners. To keep up to date with Mosin at Large and radio-related activities I'm doing, you can subscribe to our media email list. It's announcements only, and the traffic is very light. To do that, send a blank email to media-subscribe at mosin.org. That's media-subscribe at mosin.org. The podcast version of this show contains extracts from the full version, which is heard live on Mushroom FM at mushroomfm.com and anywhere that you listen to radio stations at 2 p.m. U.S. Eastern Time on a Saturday afternoon. For the full Mosin at Large experience, I encourage you to be part of that community. And finally, before we get into the episode this week, a reminder that this podcast is long, and to help you navigate past the bits that you aren't interested in to the bits that you are, it's segmented by chapters. If you have a podcast app capable of supporting chapters, and many on iOS and Android do this, you can skip between segments of the show. Great to have you along for Mosin at Large today. It's good to have your company. I have a new gadget on my desk, which is helping put today's show together. Humanware kindly sent me a Mantis Q40 Humanware is now distributing the Mantis Q40 internationally. Now, if you don't recall, maybe you weren't listening to the podcast at the time, many people in the US were very excited about the Mantis Q40 when APH released it. It is a Braille display with a QWERTY keyboard. It supports the human interface design protocol, and it means that you can use it as a QWERTY keyboard even when you can't use it as a Braille display. So it's a pretty flexible device. It has a range of apps on board as well. I am evaluating this at the moment, and all being well, I will give a comprehensive review of the Mantis Q40 and my thoughts on it very soon. Until then, my lips are sealed, and I'll continue to get familiar with it. But I will read some emails from the Mantis Q40 today, so we'll see how we go. Before we get there, of course, it is election time in the United States as we put this show together. Just a few days to go now. I look back on Donald Trump coming down that escalator in 2015 and everybody was waiting for the bubble to burst, weren't they? The political classes thought that this was a novelty candidacy and that the bubble would burst any time now. How can you possibly get away with saying the things that he says, there's got to be some blowback at some point. 
And of course, we even got to the point where he got the Republican nomination. And then there was the Access Hollywood tape. And then everybody said, you can't possibly survive something like the Access Hollywood tape. And internationally, I think, people were laughing. They were laughing about this situation and saying, this is just ridiculous. And thank goodness there's such a competent candidate running against him. And I was right there along with them until Bonnie and I decided, at my request, I have to say, that we should time a visit to spend time with her family and some of our friends so that I could be there to watch the first woman become president of the United States. And I like talking to taxi drivers and Uber drivers about politics because they meet with so many people that they have a habit of tapping into the pulse of things that is quite helpful. When I was a full-time talk show host here in New Zealand, I used to do this a lot as well. And you could really get a feel for what was going on. And when I started talking to taxi drivers about Trump and Uber drivers and saying, isn't he a joke? And they would push back and say, no, you know, he's speaking for the average person who's been forgotten about and left out for far too long. And I started to realize people outside of the U.S. anyway were not understanding the Trump candidacy. They were not getting the full picture. It's also true that a lot of people internationally find the U.S. political system very complicated and they don't understand it. And so they might look at a superficial level at the national polls and they will see that a candidate has a commanding lead in the national polls. But certainly, as my U.S. listeners will know, it doesn't matter a jot. We can argue about whether it should matter a jot that more people, millions more people voted for Hillary Clinton in the last election, but Donald Trump became president. And in fact, there's been quite a history in recent years of Republicans winning the Electoral College, but losing the popular vote. But those are the rules, aren't they? You know, and you can't blame candidates for working to maximize their performance within those rules. So people look at the horse race numbers internationally and they say, oh, this is going to be a landslide. And then they get surprised because they don't understand that what you really have to do is look at the battleground states and how they are doing. So right after James Comey got that laptop and decided to reopen the investigation into Clinton's emails and just talking to those taxi drivers while I was over there, I realized that a Trump presidency, while unlikely, was not as impossible as many people outside the United States thought it would be. Now, here we are in 2020, and we've seen it firsthand for four years. And I must say, I follow politics very closely, usually, even when there is somebody in office who I disagree with at a philosophical level, it's it's still a really interesting process. But I found it pretty tough because the situation there in the US is so extraordinary with institutions under threat, kids being separated from their parents, hundreds of thousands of people dying needlessly because of poor public policy. It really is pretty tough to follow it and to watch it. So it's going to be interesting to see what happens on the 3rd of November. I see that Nate Silver's 538 uh, prediction algorithm 
which is not too bad, has Biden with an 89% chance. But we'll just have to see what happens. If you have any predictions, you're welcome to share them. And of course, we are following the news extensively at the moment. It's hard not to follow a US presidential election if you're a political junkie and you're at this late stage of the campaign. If you have any news app recommendations or podcast app recommendations, or you just want to tell me how you get your news, what you find as a blind person the most convenient way to get your news. And of course, we have to be so careful. This is quite a new thing. We have to be so careful of all the misinformation that is out there. I very, very seldom use Facebook because it's just a cesspool of privacy breaches and craziness. But I know, sadly, a lot of people do get their news from Facebook. It's their major source of news. So if you want to tell me how you get your news, that would be great. If you are listening to the live version of this show, then today we will be giving you an interview with the developer of my favorite news app called Lear, which is an RSS reader. And I'll also give you a comprehensive demo of the app as well. And hopefully you'll get an idea of just why I think it is so cool. If you're listening on the Mosin at Large podcast feed, then you'll get that interview and demo later in the coming week. But let's go to the email. And here's Roberto Perez, who has obviously been earwigging around because he says, Hi, Jonathan, I'm glad to hear that you are giving the Mantis Q40 a try. I'm reading from it now, in fact. I look forward to hearing your show about it if you decide to bring it to the show. Yes, I definitely will do that quite soon, Roberto. I hope people will find it interesting. He says, I hope APH slash Humanware can resolve the outstanding issues or that someone else can take on the concept and make a better product. My wife and I both want to give you a special thank you for the episode on keto and low carbs. We happen to be investigating the subject and we found the resources you provided in that episode, together with your personal experience, very useful. We truly like your thoughtful approach. We are now getting ready to embark on our low-carb journey. Well, good on you. We are starting to look at devices to make preparing meals as easy as possible and a fun process. A good friend recently recommended Black Rapid 6 Capacity Electric Cooker for hard-boiled, poached, scrambled eggs or omelettes with auto-shut-off feature, which makes the preparation of hard-boiled eggs extremely easy. We can try to put together an audio demo in case your listeners are interested. That'd be fun. In that episode... You mentioned that you have an air fryer, which you find very accessible. Can you give more details about it? Any recommendation of useful and blind-friendly cooking devices like that will be very much appreciated. Thanks again for such a great program. We truly enjoy your thoughtful comments, reviews, interviews, and listeners' contributions. Thank you very much, Roberto. That's a great message. And if anybody wants to tell us about accessible devices that you use in the kitchen. I'm always interested in hearing about that. And you get the you get the you get the honor or something of <laughs> being the first email that I read on the show using this Mantis Q40 that I'm evaluating at the moment. So thank you very much for that. It sounds like you have one as well. Now the air fryer that I have, I wish I could tell you the model number. I keep meaning to check it out. 
it's a Philips one and it does have dials on the front, which makes it accessible. And so that's why we got it, because when you're shopping for kitchen appliances, you do have to be careful about this, don't you? Go in and have a play and find something that um, isn't so sort of touchscreen driven or something that you can't really use it. Mosin at Large Podcast. Hey, Jonathan, it's Tim Cummings. Hope you and Bonnie are doing well. Um, I heard a BBC story the other day that said that in New Zealand, you had just voted against legalizing marijuana for personal use. And I was just interested in that because in the States here, we've started to do that in some states, including Massachusetts. And uh, just wondering your personal thoughts on that and also your thoughts as to why um, New Zealand overall may have rejected that uh, initiative. Nice to hear from you, Tim. Yes, that's correct. Provisionally, we've got the provisional results of the two referenda that we held in conjunction with the elections. First, an overwhelming majority, 60 odd percent, voted in favour of end of life choice, which means that euthanasia under quite restricted circumstances will be legal now or is legal now. It's just a matter of putting the framework in place for that. The cannabis one was closer At the moment, 53% voted no. And I say at the moment because there is still a good number, probably almost half a million special votes to be counted. For the result to change, that special vote count would have to be about 69-ish percent yes. So I think that is very unlikely. I think we can say that New Zealanders have rejected the legalization of cannabis I voted yes in the referendum, not because I have a strong desire to use cannabis. I never have. But I hate hypocritical laws. And I think it is hypocritical that we have legalized alcohol for a long time in this country. And it does a tremendous amount of damage. It is a highly addictive drug and causes all sorts of misery. And yet marijuana which in many cases is less damaging, remains illegal. And as long as it remains illegal, apart from medical use, you have the gangs and the undesirables involved in the market. So I don't think making it illegal is going to stop people from using it. It's the same with prostitution. We have legalized prostitution here in New Zealand because we realized some years ago you can make it illegal all you want, but all that does is make already vulnerable people even more vulnerable because undesirable elements get involved. And that's why we created a legalized framework around it. And I feel similarly about marijuana, that if you create a legalized framework around it, you can get the undesirables out of the system. You can make sure there are health warnings when it's provided, a whole bunch of things. But I guess there was just a conservative element here in New Zealand that felt uncomfortable about another drug being legal and the potential consequences of that happening. I think also that this topic may have been buried a little bit. This was definitely a COVID election. The government's handling of COVID-19 was uppermost in people's minds. And obviously, they got a resounding tick. It was a massive vote in favor of the current government, an historic vote in favor. Then we also had the euthanasia thing which is a highly emotive and very important issue. And then there was this cannabis referendum. So New Zealanders had a lot to think about. And I think because of that, some of the more nuanced discussion about this topic probably got a bit lost in the shuffle. 
and I think it could be some time before it comes back for another referendum. Hey, Jonathan, my name is Madeline Mouch. I just wanted to see if you have heard of this app called Conversation Builder. It's created by the company called Little App Factory Proprietary Unlimited. How this app works is you uh, go through three choices of conversations and then you record after you get the right choice and then you sort before you do that you have to sort what type of conversation you would like to play and it's a really cool app that I like to use. It was recommended by my speech teacher, Jennifer Tabinsinski. Thank you. Let me know what your listeners think. Bye. Well, it's great to hear from you. And thank you so much for calling the podcast. That's really cool. I have not heard of Conversation Builder before. And so after you told me about it, I looked it up some more. And according to a review site that I found, it says Conversation Builder helps kids learn to have multiple exchange conversations with peers in social settings. Designed for kids on the autism spectrum who often have trouble with this skill, Conversation Builder allows kids to rehearse, learn from mistakes and ultimately have successful conversations. The app includes seven conversation modules with more than 100 in-app scripts on topics like holidays, animals, and friends. The customization settings include options for varying lengths of conversations, as well as who initiates, the student or peer. The group option allows kids to use the app for guided practice with peers face-to-face. Kids see a photo of a social setting and three-sentence options. They choose the sentence they think best opens or continues the conversation. If they choose incorrectly, a gentle hint directs them to the better choice. Once they choose the correct response, they can record themselves and play back the recording. Kids get an audio response to their sentence. For example, kids choose, Hi, Becky, to start a conversation, and a little girl's voice responds, Hi. That sounds like a really cool app, and I can understand why you're so excited about using it. So keep up the great work, and thank you very much, because what you've actually done by calling into Mosin at Large is you've started this conversation. So that's wonderful. Thank you very much for letting me know about the app. Addy is back, and he says, I need some input on mixes. (laughs) Get it? Input on mixes. That was very good, that was. (laughs) You see what you did there? You have, he says, an in-depth knowledge regarding them. What would be your recommendation on an entry-level mixer? Also, how much real estate do these occupy? On my work desk, I already have my laptop, soup drinker speaker, and my Sonos. Are these mixers real bulky, or are they also available in a very tiny form factor? Well, yes, they are both. The one I have is quite large because it is one of those 22-channel behemoths, the big kahuna. But if you're looking for an entry-level mixer, you can get as few as two or three channels. 
and they can be quite small. The thing about mixers is that because I, I mean, the, the last one I had, it lasted me about 16 years, and I bought this one, I think, about four years ago. So I don't go around looking at mixers a lot other than what I see. Brands like Behringer, Yamaha, Allen & Heath, those are all good manufacturers. I'm not saying that anything else is not, but those are pretty common names that you can find in hi-fi stores. And so I think what I would suggest is that you go to a hi-fi store and tell them what you want to accomplish. For example, if you want to have your iPhone and your computer coming through a single source with a fader on each, you only need a two-channel mixer. If you want a bit more room to do other things, maybe you want to plug a microphone in as well, then there's a third channel right there. So think about what you want to use the mixer for and perhaps allow yourself a little bit of room to expand because it could be a costly mistake to buy a product where there's no expansion potential at all and then you quickly find you've outgrown the product that you've bought as you gain confidence. I think if you're just getting started and your requirements are fairly basic, buying a mixer with masses of channels is probably overkill. I did buy a mixer when uh, Heidi and Henry got married a couple of years ago that is really portable and it has a 9-volt battery on it. I think I've mentioned this on the podcast before. So we actually ran it outside and uh, that was really cool. Did a great recording of the wedding, had everything coming into the mixer and all powered by a 9-volt battery. Pretty neat. So yes, they come in all sorts of shapes and sizes. If you get one, let us know what you ended up with. It's time once again for another edition of the Apple of My Blind Eye. Yes, it's more Apple feedback coming in. We tend to get a lot of it on this show, and that's just fine. You will remember that last week, what we need is dramatic music and a voice going, Previously on Mosin at Large. Recently on Mosin at Large. We uh, heard from Joanne, who was uh, prevaricating. That's what she was doing, prevaricating. Asking the question about the iPhone SE and whether it was true that it had abysmal battery life. Here's David Green, and he says, Hi, Jonathan, I have an iPhone SE 2020, and the battery life is disappointing, to say the least. I went from an iPhone XR to this phone because of the physical size and the home button. I was noticing that the battery life on my XR was declining, but not nearly as bad as this SE. I had fully planned on getting the iPhone, but when I learned that there was no home button, I had second thoughts. Last week, I bought a battery case for my SE, and it is just wonderful. I can go all day using the phone for training clients and still have plenty of battery life at the end of the day. However, the case seems to obstruct the field of vision of the camera. I can't seem to win with this lovely SE. I am still in my dilemma. Should I graduate to the iPhone 12 or suffer the issues with the SE? Any advice from you or your listeners would be appreciated. Thank you very much, David. My advice would be get the 12, dude. Get the 12, faster processor, 5G, much better battery life by all accounts. And really, the lack of a home button is nothing to fear. The gesture for swiping up from the bottom of the screen or swiping down from the top to get to the control center and notification center is really easy. And you can practice to your heart's content by going into the voiceover practice area until you feel that you have it right. 
I do realize, and I have a lot of sympathy actually, for the concept that the blind community has a pretty unique use case for Touch ID, which is that if you're wearing AirPods or some other earbuds or even made for iPhone hearing aids, you can keep the iPhone in your pocket because you don't need to see the screen. You can unlock it with Touch ID, and it's a pretty cool thing. So I do get that. But I really like the fact that my 11 Pro Max is so dependable, and I use it for everything, as regular listeners to this podcast will know. I don't carry around a Victor stream with my books on or anything like that. I use this thing hard every day. I do word processing on it. I do most of my email with it, listening to all sorts of streams, reading lots of news and other information as it comes in. I use Voice Dream Reader to read work-related documents and use it in meetings and that kind of stuff. And I do not run out of battery life, even when I am working this thing really hard. And for me, being able to do all those things with such a portable device that's dependable and doesn't run out of juice, you know, I'll cope with Face ID for that. It really isn't that bad. A bit of a pain in the butt when you're wearing a mask, I agree but it'll pass. And of course, there are ways to conserve battery life, but then you start to get into compromising the utility of the phone. You can turn various background processes off. You could even at a pinch go into low power mode earlier than you might otherwise be prompted to do. There are things you can do, but if you're really going to use your phone to the max, that's going to be really quite limiting. And if you're finding yourself needing to depend on a battery case, then that adds bulk to the phone anyway, doesn't it? So one of the key use cases for the iPhone SE 2020, the size, sort of goes away. And it won't be too long, you know, another few weeks, until we find out what the battery life of the iPhone 12 mini is like. So if the size of the phone is a big factor, then you'd get a smaller phone with the iPhone 12 mini, with the new processor, and 5G. Continuing on the theme of the iPhone SE battery life, here's Rathish. He says, Dear Jonathan, this is Rathish from India. It's been only two months since I started listening to your podcast, but I have become a big fan of you in such a short time. I have learned quite a lot of things from what you and other listeners shared through it. And finally, today I thought of dropping this mail asking for your and other listeners' opinion on what is the best battery charging habit for an iPhone. I am asking this because recently I purchased an iPhone SE 2020. I am very much impressed with its performance and accessibility, but the battery backup is not that great. Because of the fear that the battery will go down very fast and repeated charging might lead to quicker chemical aging of the battery, I am not able to use the phone quite freely. On some websites, I am seeing best practice is to charge your battery until 80% and don't let the battery get drained completely. Is this really true? Shouldn't we charge our battery to 100%? Because of this, I am always carrying an Android device also. Its battery backup is very good, but the accessibility is not as good as iPhone. I use the Android device for watching YouTube videos and for listening to podcasts. Thanks, Rathish. Bonnie got an iPhone SE 2020 for work this week, actually, and she confirms that the battery life on it is indeed abysmal. 
So I haven't had anybody contact me to say, ah, people are exaggerating the battery life's fantastic. All the feedback I've received, and I know nothing about this directly, I just want to say that, but all the feedback I've received indicates that the battery life on the iPhone SE 2020 really sounds like it's a problem. It's a huge detractor from buying that particular phone. The websites that are suggesting this, charging the battery to 80% and not letting it go below 20%, they are absolutely correct in the context of the lithium-ion batteries that are in use in devices today. With older battery technology, they used to say batteries develop a memory effect if you don't charge them all the way up and all the way down again. If you do that with these lithium-ion batteries, you are going to shorten the battery life. And this is precisely why Apple has an optimized battery charging feature in the iPhone now. And it has your battery hovering around 80% for much of the time when optimized battery is turned on. And then just before it thinks you might need to use the phone or when you tell it to, you can give it an extra 20% boost if you want to. So if you want to preserve the life of your battery, then that is the way to do it. Don't go above 80% and don't go below 20%. But I mean, the battery will decay over time anyway. And you've got to weigh that up against the inconvenience of doing this. So moderation and everything is the key, isn't it? But I am disappointed to get yet another confirmation that the battery life on the iPhone SE 2020 is so dodgy. Now, we have been talking about news sites, and Rathish talks about this as well. He says, regarding this week's discussion topic about reading news, I use the Google News app. In one single app, we get news updates from different sources. That is the feature that impresses me. In Google News, the major challenge I am facing is the ads that appear in between the articles. That's right. And of course, Microsoft has a similar news app. Apple does too, but it's only available in a very limited number of countries. I'm so glad you found the podcast, Rathish, and I hope you keep listening. Thank you so much. Hey, Jonathan, this is Peggy Kern. Um, Thought I would throw out a quick topic for people to maybe share their views on, and it is the app switcher. When I first got my very first iPhone many years ago, I was always told, take everything out of the app switcher. Always keep it empty because otherwise it'll drain your battery. So I was very diligent to do that. And then later on, I heard, no, it doesn't make any difference for your battery. Don't even worry about it. So I went the other way where, you know, unless it was something that I might use like once a month or something, I would uh, leave it in the app switcher. Otherwise, if it was something that I rarely used, I would take it out just because there was no reason to leave it in. And I still hear people on both sides of the fence. So I would be interested in hearing from you and listeners, what do you guys do with your app switchers? Do you leave stuff in them? Do you take them out? Uh, Keep it clean? Um, I've also heard, maybe it just depends on whether you turn off background app refresh. Maybe if you leave stuff in your app, switcher you would need to be more careful about uh, turning off background app refresh and then it wouldn't matter and otherwise maybe it does I don't know just something to throw out the great debate over app switchers I can remember that there used to be a button in iOS quite some time ago now where you could close all of your apps at once in the app switcher 
And I thought that was glorious because every so often I'd go in and I'd do a catch up and I would close all my apps. About three and a half, maybe four years ago, I read an article and it went quite viral where apparently somebody who has major Apple genius creds, it was some senior person at Apple or some senior Apple genius bar person, came down with the the, the sermon from the Mount and said it's not necessary to close all your apps, that if you did that, you would in fact potentially be consuming more battery life in the long term because what really consumes the juice is the launching of the app. That was the argument as I understand it. So some people, myself included, would in the past close all your apps before you're going on a big long plane flight. But then, of course, what would happen is as you were on that plane flight, you would open some of those apps again to use them in flight. And his argument was that's going to consume more power than leaving the apps in the app switcher. You also have apps like Tile, which need to be running in the background now because of Apple's more stringent controls about what apps can do in the background when they're not running. So if you want to keep tabs on your tiles, you will need to do that. And if you try and close the tile app, you'll get a push notification telling you this. That said, I still tend to go through my apps maybe once a week or so and close all the apps from the app switcher. I don't know whether it's doing any harm leaving them all there, but I'm just a bit of a neat freak. So I don't like this long, long list of apps in my app switcher and I close them just to keep things tidy. But I typically don't go through the moments that I finished using an app and closing it. I think that might be a little bit unnecessary unless you believe you have a rogue app. It's certainly true that Facebook at different times has done things in the background that have caused severe battery loss. And I think that's what got me back into doing this. When I read that article back, and I think it was late 2016 or something like that, I thought, okay, I'll just leave it alone then. And then there was a build of Facebook that came out that really drained the battery. And I thought, all right, I'm going to have to keep closing Facebook. And then I just got into the habit of closing apps sort of semi-regularly, but I'm not particularly obsessed with doing it. So if you have a view on what to do with the app switcher or what you do with the app switcher and what has worked for you, do feel free to share. You can give us a call. 1-864-60-MOSIN is the number that is in the United States. 1-864-606-6736. My email address where you can attach an audio clip like Peggy did, or you can just write something down, jonathan at mushroomfm.com. Now, a game changer for me in iOS was when Shortcuts was introduced to iOS. It has made the operating system so much more powerful and flexible. And we have an email on this subject from Gene Harper, who says, I was wondering if your show could explore series Shortcuts that you and others find useful. The reason I'm asking is because when shortcuts opportunities are suggested, it's just as quick for me to use Siri to do the action. Maybe, she says, I'm missing something. Thanks so much, Gina. Good to hear from you. Hope you're well. Shortcuts can be assigned to Siri commands as well. And in fact, I use a lot of shortcuts that are assigned to Siri commands. For example, Mushroom FM uses multiple servers and I have a shortcut That was actually written by the famous Gordon Luke that will check the Mushroom FM listeners across the multiple servers that we have and speak it to me. And I execute that with a Siri command. I also have it in a folder 
on my home screen where I can check various other things that way. You can double tap the shortcut or you can execute it with a Siri command. Similarly, Castro, which is the podcast app that I use, has a gallery full of shortcuts pertaining to Castro and you can actually make them and contribute to this gallery. And I have a number of those that I use. Some I use with Siri commands, some I've actually assigned to shortcuts through VoiceOver itself. For example, when I'm listening to a podcast episode and I've had enough, I can say clear this episode, which is the Siri command, and it will execute a shortcut that clears the episode from the queue and starts playing the next one. Or because I use this so often, I've assigned it to a four finger single tap with voiceover on in iOS. So when I perform that four-finger single tap, the episode goes away and I'm immediately playing the next one. And the cool thing about that is I don't have to be in Castro to execute that command. I could have a podcast playing in the background while I'm doing other things, perhaps just checking social media or something like that. And when I've had enough, I don't need to leave the app I'm in, just a four-finger single tap with voiceover and the podcast is gone and I'm playing the next one in my queue. I listen to a lot of podcasts on the treadmill or when I'm on the rowing machine doing those things. So I need to be hands free. And if I'm listening to short podcasts like news items, then I would use that Castro command to just skip when I've heard enough and go on to the next one. If I'm listening to a longer podcast, then I'm hopeful that the podcast creator has divided the podcast into chapters, so I have shortcuts that are also assigned to Siri commands to skip to the next chapter, skip to the previous one, or play from the beginning of the chapter if I got a bit distracted. I do use ETA-type shortcuts, so I have one set up that I either execute from the shortcuts app or I say to Siri, I'm heading home, and I've assigned that specific command to that shortcut, And what it does is it checks where I am at the moment and the distance to home. And then it will also check current traffic conditions. And just that command sends a text message to Bonnie, which says, I'm at this location and I'll be home in, say, 25 minutes, if that's the traffic pattern. And she gets that and she knows to expect me soon. Another app that lives the shortcuts dream is Ulysses, which is my preferred way of composing documents on my iPhone. And I have a number of Ulysses shortcuts set up. For example, if I'm reading something and I think, oh, this could be of interest for Mosin at large, I can copy it to the clipboard, you know, select a bit of text and copy it to the clipboard from whatever I'm reading from. And then I can say new podcast story. Just by saying new podcast story, Ulysses opens, it goes into the Mosin at large folder and it creates a new document there ready for me to paste or sometimes just dictate into the document. I have another one like that for the Today in History feature that we do on the Mosin explosion on Mushroom FM during the week. And I can just say Today in History, it opens the document ready for me to read the day's history and work with it for the show. I also have a Ulysses command that simply says new work document. If I'm inspired to write something down or begin work on something, it goes into my work folder, creates the document. I can either type or dictate at that point. Another series of shortcuts I use regularly pertain to my Waterminder app. That's a fully accessible app. It's available on iOS and Apple Watch. 
Making sure you get enough hydration during the day is critical for good health and good performance. And if you don't track it, you can't measure it and you can't improve it, right? So I have a series of shortcuts where as soon as I drink some fluid, be it water or tea usually, I can say to Siri, log whatever the amount of water it is, usually 300 milliliters or 500 milliliters of water, and it immediately logs it in the WaterMinder app. I also have an app called AnyList, which Bonnie and I use to track our shopping lists. And the really cool thing about this is that it will integrate with the soup drinker shopping lists for your Amazon Echo devices. So I can either add something to the shopping list using any of the soup drinker devices around our house. We are never in a position not to be able to yell at the soup drinker from anywhere in our house, but we could be somewhere else. And I have this shortcut that adds something to my soup drinker shopping list stored on the Amazon Echo devices. So I can just say add protein bars to my soup drinker shopping list and it will go ahead and do that. I have a shortcut that if I'm just feeling a bit social and I'm really enjoying a song that I'm listening to, I can say tweet song and it will check what I'm listening to in Apple Music, fill in all the data and then let me send the tweet with everything pre-composed. Similarly, with the Twitter app, I have a series shortcut that just says create new direct message and the direct message feature pops up. I have a lot of shortcuts pertaining to the TripIt app, which I haven't used a lot this year, but TripIt is a fantastic way to get information in one place pertaining to your travel. When you get hotel confirmations and flight confirmations, bus, train, or manner of things, you can forward them to plans at TripIt.com. If you don't have a TripIt account, you'll be talked through the process of creating it. And I've been using TripIt since all the way back in the Symbian days. When I was doing a lot of international travel, it really did organize my life. Now I have a whole bunch of shortcuts that make things so much easier. Because when I'm taxiing in, for example, I can say to Siri, baggage claim info. And I don't know whether you have to have the TripIt Pro for this to work, which I do. But it tells me the carousel that my bag is coming in on. Siri just tells me that information because it's scraping the data from the TripIt app. And then when I've called Ira, I can tell them which carousel we are looking for. If I've got a connecting flight, I can say gate information and it will tell me the next gate that I have to be at. If I simply say to TripIt what's next, it will give me whatever is next, whether it be the hotel I should be heading for or the next flight I should be heading to. So Siri shortcuts save a lot of time. If I'm joining a Zoom meeting, I can say join my Zoom meeting and the Zoom app will open and jump me into my next meeting in my calendar, which when I'm running from one meeting to another, be it virtual or otherwise, saves me a lot of time and swiping around on the phone. I've downloaded quite a few very clever shortcuts from websites like MacStories.net where they have a guy there who's just a shortcut ninja. And he's created things like a do not disturb timer, where you can set how long you don't want to be disturbed for, and a, a range of other things. There are some pretty cool third-party shortcut galleries out there. Normally, they're pretty safe, but if you are going to allow yourself to install shortcuts from a third-party source, it is a good idea to just go through that shortcut and check what it's doing. So those are just a few things. 
off the top of my head that I use on a really regular basis, with the exception at the moment of TripIt, which I'm not using much, that really helped me with shortcuts. I think it's a fantastic innovation from Apple. And I would be very interested to hear about what use other people are putting shortcuts to. Hi, Jonathan. It's Tanya Harrison here. Um, Tristan was asking about screen protectors and if anyone knew of any that didn't get sticky. And personally, that was always a bugbear of mine. I don't like it when you get all these little finger marks all over your screen. They, They feel a little yucky. So I got a tempered glass matte screen protector. And if you're putting that into a search engine at eBay, Matt is spelled M-A-T-T-E. And it feels like the older laptop screen, so it's not absolutely smooth. And the good thing is it doesn't take any finger stuff onto it. So I've had it now for about six months and I really like it. Now, Jonathan, um, regarding the cases, I personally would like to use my phone more often out of a case. I'm having trouble at the moment with a new charger I've got. It's a wireless charger. If my phone is not in a case, it's fine. But if I do have my phone in a case, it often has trouble staying on it. I don't know whether the charge is effective. Um, It says that the case brand I get says they're compatible and on my old charger it was. The thing I would like to see for those of us who don't wish to use cases is I wish someone would make a rubber band that you could stick around the edges of the phone. I do find it harder to grip without that rubber that you often get on a case. And I think if there was just a rubber band around the edge that could be transparent, it would not spoil the aesthetics of the phone. The only thing I personally don't like about using a phone without a case, when you put your phone down on a surface like a table, it wobbles a little bit. And I sometimes would like something I could put on the back of my phone that was transparent but would just make the phone even all over the back of it. Thanks so much, Tanya. Apple has released Apple One this week. We've talked about this. This is the bundle of services where you can pay for various tiers and get several services in one package, Apple Music, Apple News, if it's available where you are, iCloud Storage, and there are various tiers that you can subscribe to. Interestingly, I don't know whether it's New Zealand or me, you know, whether it's being rolled out. I don't have it yet, but most people seem to. And the way you get to it is you go into settings on your iPhone, and then right at the top, you'll find the place where you can double tap and get all the information about your Apple ID. It has your name and email. And there are a lot of useful settings there for your Apple ID. So you double tap that, and then there's a button called subscriptions. You'll find when you double tap that button to have a look at your subscriptions, it takes a wee while to load. And then towards the top, if Apple One is available where you are, you will find the Apple One subscription button where you can investigate the levels of Apple One service that are available where you are. Apple has also released iOS 14 Golden Master to developers and not a moment too soon. Earlier in the week, every so often, we were getting these messages, those of us who are beta testers, saying an update is available for iOS. You've got to update now. And you'd go through and you'd go to the update screen and it would say you are up to date. 
And this has happened before. I can't remember. It gets a bit of a blur when you get to my age, I tell you. But I remember it has happened before. And what happened last time is that those messages got more and more frequent the longer it was left. And I thought to myself, oh boy, Apple's going to release an update any day now, because if they don't, we're going to get inundated, unindated, bombarded with these messages. And sure enough, by Friday night, New Zealand time, pretty much every time you unlocked your phone or went to the home screen, these messages were popping up. And luckily, Apple put us out of our misery by releasing the iOS 14.2 Golden Master yesterday. And it had a bit of a scary impact on my Apple Watch for a while. I have reported on my Apple Watch woes, and I declared them fixed recently. And it's been fantastic. I've really enjoyed getting full use of my Apple Watch, really for the first time in a year. But last night, I put the watch on after it had recharged, after achieving my rings, And after about three hours, I noticed that it was all the way down to 92%. And I thought, oh, not again. This is terrible. So I rebooted the phone, rebooted the watch, and everything is back to normal again. So phew, phew, I say. Long may it stay that way. But far more important than my little Apple Watch woes is a really exciting thing that Apple has put into iOS 14. And it reminds us, that while we may have some concerns from time to time about quality control, and I think those concerns are valid, it does not in any way take anything away from the fact that Apple continues to do some amazing stuff and lead the way in terms of mainstream companies using their technology for really cool, innovative accessibility ends. And in this case, I'm talking about LiDAR. You will remember that when the iPhones were announced, one of the things we talked about on that wrap of the Apple presentation was, what will LiDAR mean for blind people? And LiDAR is only available in the Pro models. So you get the LiDAR technology in the iPhone 12 Pro that you can buy now, and in the iPhone 12 Pro Max that goes on pre-order on November the 6th. Now, this article is from TechCrunch, And they say that Apple has packed an interesting new accessibility feature into the latest beta of iOS. It's a system that detects the presence and distance to people in the view of the iPhone's camera. So blind users can social distance effectively, among many other things. The feature, TechCrunch says, emerged from Apple's AR kit, for which the company developed People Occlusion, which detects people's shapes and lets virtual items pass in front of and behind them. The accessibility team realized that this, combined with the accurate distance measurements provided by the LiDAR units on the iPhone 12 Pro and Pro Max, could be an extremely useful tool for anyone with a visual impairment. Of course, during the pandemic, one immediately thinks of the idea of keeping six feet away from other people. But knowing where others are and how far away is a basic visual task that we use all the time to plan where we walk, which line we get into at stores, whether to cross the street, and so on. The new feature, which will be part of the Magnifier app, uses the LiDAR and wide-angle camera of the Pro and Pro Max, giving feedback to the user in a variety of ways. First, it tells the user whether there are people in the view at all, 
If someone is there, it will then say how far away the closest person is in feet or meters, updating regularly as they approach or move further away. The sound corresponds in stereo to the direction the person is in the camera's view. Second, it allows the user to set tones corresponding to certain distances. For example, if they set the distance at six feet, they'll hear one tone if a person is more than six feet away, another if they're inside that range. After all, not everyone wants a constant feed of exact distances if all they care about is staying two paces away. The third feature, perhaps extra useful for folks who have visual and hearing impairments, say TechCrunch, is a haptic pulse that goes faster as a person gets closer. Last is a visual feature for people who need a little help discerning the world around them, an arrow that points to the detected person on the screen. And you can go to TechCrunch and read the article in full. Now, that is one of the most awesome things I have read in quite some time. And if Apple has been able to bake that into iOS 14.2 using ARKit at this early stage, then you do wonder what is going to be coming not just from Apple in the future, but third-party developers that will be helpful for blind people. Now, TechCrunch did go on to say in that article that Apple gives the caveat, you know, don't use this for navigation. You should probably consider this a bit of an experimental feature at this stage, maybe a proof of concept. But, oh man, when I read that, it suddenly changed my perception of the iPhone 12. And I'm sitting there reading this and saying to Bonnie, hmm, 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 I'd like to be on the cutting edge of this and having a review and having a play of some of this. Hmm. And, and Bonnie turned to me and she said, very sort of sweetly, she said, do you really need it, sweetie? <laughs> and I said, I probably don't really need it to know, but gee, isn't this interesting? This is so exciting. So Absolutely, people were right to say that LiDAR could be the killer feature for blind people in the iPhone 12. You know, 5G, kind of cool, nice to have. You get bragging rights. The LiDAR in the iPhone 12 Pro range could make a really big practical difference to your everyday life in time. I think the moral of the story is if you are looking at buying a new iPhone, I, as a blind person, would say, You've really got to seriously consider getting one of the pros, especially if you're the kind of person that keeps your phone around for a few years, because I think you'll find that over the next few years, this LiDAR thing is going to get very big. And if you bought a cheaper phone, you may not consider it a very wise investment to be stuck with something that doesn't have LiDAR. So just hats off and congratulations to Apple for doing this so quickly and for giving accessibility some thought in this way. Hey, Jonathan, it's Maria. I'm recording this using my shiny new iPhone 12 Pro, so hopefully you can tell if there's any difference with the mic quality. For me, I'm upgrading from an iPhone 7, so this is just such a huge, huge improvement in performance. I can really tell with things like voiceover responsiveness when I added the additional US language voice to get rid of the sluggishness, and... Also, just loading web pages and Siri responsiveness and such, I can tell it's so much faster. And of course, the battery life compared with my 7, which is struggling a bit at that point with battery capacity. So that is 
nice to not have to charge the phone a couple of times a day. Um, in terms of the uh, 5G, I did have a plan to test that out today. I was going to go and do early voting and so work with an IRA agent with some of the orientation to that polling site because it was an unfamiliar location. But Apparently, I'm glad I called the Board of Elections because there was such a long line that the uh, person suggested I come another day since uh, they weren't even going to be able to serve all of the people who were there uh, at that moment. So we will hopefully try that soon and another time. And uh, hopefully I'll get a sense, too, of what the agent uh, thinks of the, the camera. So I, I suspect it's not the um, NM wave or anything like that. But, you know, my phone does say 5G with the icons. So um, we will see what happens with uh, that. I do like the smaller size of the Pro um, as compared to the Max in terms of holding my phone in landscape for braille screen input in the screen away mode, especially I have a little bit of smaller hands. <laughs> um, and in terms of, I do like my cases. I have an OtterBox Defender and I've had unintentionally a few drops of my phone um, on things like a uh, sidewalk or tile. And um, so I've just, I've liked the peace of mind of knowing that um, that I don't have to worry. And I do have their uh, Amplify screen protector also. And so um, that was pretty easy to put on. It was my first time putting on a screen protector. Uh, and uh, they came with a bunch of, ugh, like this whole kit of like an alignment tool and a squeegee tool and a, a dust sticker and a... Uh, an alcohol wipe and I'm sure I'm missing something but um, it was kind of a little bit of a procedure to put it on but it was pretty easy and um foolproof to to do that and uh so, so far, so good. I mean, it's only been <laughs> 24 hours, but I'm quite liking it. I've actually gotten, I'm surprised how quickly I got used to not having the home button. And uh, the face ID is working pretty well for me too so far. Uh, knock on wood, I've had uh, pretty decent success with it so far. So I am quite pleased that I got this uh, upgrade. In terms of guide dogs versus guide robots, you know, for me personally, I, I can understand in general what you're saying. Uh, I think if someone didn't want to or couldn't for whatever reason care for a dog, you know, it would be uh, appealing perhaps. Um, and I, I get what, you know, you're saying that in terms of, you know, perhaps efficiencies and such. But, you know, for me, I think as you said, I think it does just for me personally come down to that, um, you know, emotional bond. When I decided to get a guide dog, you know, one of the main factors of it was because I wanted another, you know, I wanted a, a living being <laughs> to walk, you know, with me. I uh, didn't just want an impersonal um tool and you know canes are great and I I do still you know use it at times to keep up my skills and such but um you know I just I love the fact that there's this animal walking beside me who wants to be there who's willing and who finds joy in it you know that gives me a lot of you know joy and and wonder at their you know as you said their initiative and um and just gives me a lot of you know motivation to to go walking because I just she's so bouncy, you know, and wiggly and happy when we are going to go to work. And, um, you know, meaning when, when she's going to work, whether we're going, you know, anywhere. And so, um, you know, that is just definitely something that I would miss, um, if, if guide dogs went away. Um, and, you know, also just the, the, 
social aspect, um, the fact that the dogs add a bit of adventure to life. You know, there's, I've had conversations I never would have had. I've met people I wouldn't have, um, if it hadn't been for Lacey. And, you know, sometimes they, like you said, they're just, do- they're, they are dogs in the end. And as trained as they are, you know, sometimes they will find the most opportune, perfect time to let out a bark and, you know, bring some comedy <laughs> into life. And, and, you know, and, um, whenever we go back, you know, to the office, there's something to be said about, you know, if things are a little stressful and, or I want a break and, you know, there's, you know, deep breathing and meditation and positive thoughts for sure. But, you know, there's also, you can't beat, you know, going under the desk and finding a wet nose and a waggy tail and a fuzzy face. <laughs> and, um, so, you know, there's that, that therapeutic aspect too. And just the fact that they're so, you know, lovely and, and playful. And, you know, I think for me, I, horses are great too. I've ridden horses. Um, for me, when I think about that, um, in terms of them being used for transportation before, I guess for me, the big difference is that, dogs can just be with you so much more you know I think with you know the horses you'd get to where you needed to go and then you know they would be tied to a post or something and you'd you know go into your building whereas you know these dogs are coming with us everywhere and we're spending you know so much more time with them they're in our houses and such too so you know I would just um really miss that you know having to uh, I mean being able to um go you know somewhere with with a dog everywhere I mean you know if, if we didn't have a you know, choice, I'm sure I would, you know, accept it and such. But, you know, I hope that that choice doesn't um, ever go away. And for me, I would, you know, choose guide dogs always. And I, I think, you know, in terms of social connection, too, I think from a, you know, human standpoint, I mentioned Ira before, um, you know, and it's nice to kind of have that, like, human touch, too, if I'm using Ira for some type of navigation, like you were saying, to that door, or to the whatever, you know, I remember one time I kind of got stuck between two detours as I was leaving the office, so I couldn't really go back, and I couldn't go forward to my bus stop completely because of another detour, and so I was sort of in the middle of this block, and I figured the best way to get home would be to get a Lyft or an Uber, and and it was nice to be able to, you know, have the IRA agent um, there with me to track the car since I wasn't, you know, sure how precisely I'd indicated my pickup location kind of in the middle of this like open area in a block, you know, between two buildings. And um, it was just nice to be able to, you know, have a bit of a chat. And it was, um, you know, it kind of it just made the situation a little less anxious, I guess, you know, being surrounded by, by construction. Um, so, you know, that, that relationship, whether it be, you know, human or animal, um, has just really worked well for me. Well, thank you, Maria. Nice to hear from you as always. And of course, from your iPhone 12 as well. And yes, I can confirm that is the trademark iPhone sound of recent years. So they haven't done anything to the processing this year. In recent times on Mosin at Large, we've been talking about what the future holds for transportation and mobility as blind people, self-driving cars, robotic guiding devices. What might the future hold? And Michael Bullis has been giving some thought to this. He says, over my lifetime as a blind person, I have seen and evaluated dozens of what promise to be new traveling devices to assist me. Mostly, they either don't work or are too expensive as to become ubiquitous, or they are simply too large. Think robot. Currently, blind people mostly travel by three methods, canes, dogs, and human guides. Whatever method a blind person uses today, it can be augmented with GPS apps that give turn-by-turn directions and information about surroundings, such as what businesses are in the area and how close I am to a particular address. Dogs and human guides are expensive, get sick, or aren't available when one wishes they were. 
While canes are inexpensive and can get one from point A to point B, they can be slow in new areas and they don't protect from overhead objects like wet branches on a rainy day. So, what about a new electronic aid that works, isn't too costly and can do all of what a cane and dog do and some of the things a human guide can do if properly trained and available? I think we are on the edge of such a new device and we'll describe it here. Where most practical guiding technologies fall apart is that they lead as opposed to guide. Dogs both lead and guide, while canes provide information but don't lead. When it comes to technology, leading invariably requires motors and is large and expensive. Now, change your thinking paradigm to guiding and possibilities open up. What you need is something that guides you, but also gives you real-time analog feedback. A voice saying, you're approaching a curb, tells me nothing specific. Is the curb a ramp? Is it angled? Is there a power pole? And finally, how high is the curb? Trying to impart this information through language is so cumbersome and takes so long as to be impractical. When the blind person is using a human guide, dog or cane, this information is received directly and indirectly with such comments as high curb from the human or feeling the curb with the cane. The user feels the dog step down and the dog goes around the power pole. So let's see if we can make the cane more like the dog. Imagine that the cane had two wheels on its tips, one on the left and one on the right, perhaps four inches apart, with each wheel having a brake, no motor, just a brake. And further, imagine this cane had a parallax viewing capability, two cameras that work like eyes allowing for distance exactness. Perception of exact distance with the human eye requires two of them, combining information to calculate precisely how far away something is. Calculating distance with LiDAR might be a solution, but let's keep it simple and inexpensive by using a camera. The iPhone might be able to do this, but it's a close call at this point. Rather than the motors required for a robot to guide or lead you, this device could see what's in front of you and guide you around obstructions, which is the primary function of the guide dog and the human guide. The device doesn't need to have motors to pull you along. You can propel yourself and your cane already. What you need is information that helps you make decisions about where to go. When the device sees an object in front of you, it can guide you around the object by the use of those two wheels I mentioned earlier. When there is an obstacle in front of you that you can go around to the right of, the wheel on the right brakes and the cane naturally goes to the right because the wheel on the left still moves freely. When you are at a curb, both wheels brake. Just as with a dog, you need to incorporate other information to tell you why the wheels have braked. Is there noisy traffic in front of you? Is sound bouncing off a wall in front of you? All of this contextual information is what the blind traveller already knows how to calculate. Like a good guide dog, the device can recognise curbs, sidewalks, doorways, etc., an up-facing camera could also see streetlights and hanging branches. That's all possible, and it could be very inexpensive. Robots simply cost too much. 
One Japanese robot claims it will cost $200,000 in 2025. Not practical and not necessary. Just teaching robots to climb stairs has been a massive undertaking. Take my robot for a hike in the woods? Not likely. A dog today costs about $70,000, so the bar isn't very high if we're trying to replace the dog with technology. I have used all three methods of assistance dogs, canes, and human guides. They all have assets and limitations. What I and most blind people want is independence. That independence is provided mostly through canes and dogs for most of us, with the occasional assistance of a human guide. What I love about using a dog is the freedom to walk through a crowd and travel in a new neighborhood with speed. What I do not love about a dog is the care and, because it's a dog, the unpredictable health and behavior. So, thinking through what dogs are trained to do avoid obstacles, stop at curbs, find doorways and intersecting pathways all of that we could do with an app and camera that can measure precise distances, recognize obstacles, and transmit analog information to allow me to make decisions. If there are those of you out there who want AI that changes lives, here's your project. Not too complicated, but could change the lives of millions of people who are blind throughout the world. Thanks, Mike. I like to hope that that would be an interim step. I mean, new technology always is very expensive when it's just being developed. I think deaf blind people would benefit substantially from some sort of robot technology where some of those blindness skills that you talk about are not available. And of course, we should also factor in the high cost of training and how inefficient that might be compared to new emerging technologies. But it will be very interesting. To see what happens with LiDAR in the future and whether that might be the basis of what you're talking about. Kathy Blackburn says the Suno band, which detects obstacles and gives you vibratory feedback, much like the WeWalk, pairs with an iPhone app. Updates to the Suno app have added navigational information. I have not yet had enough experience with it to see how well it works. In the summer of 2019, I fell and bruised my ribs. The injury was painful, but nothing was broken. Even after healing was well underway, I became so afraid of falling that by the time the pandemic hit, I was not going out by myself at all. I am only now beginning to walk in my neighborhood, but I don't yet have the confidence to walk very far. That's awful, Kathy. I wish you all the best with gaining that confidence back. That sort of thing can really knock you back. Technician, can you build me a self driving car? asks the blind guy. Oh, that's pretty complicated, says the technician. Could you come up with some other request, please? Could you build me a robotic guide dog? asks the blind guy. Oh, sorry, should that self driving car have leather seats? Of course, there will be robotic guide dogs, but it's far harder. To build in practice than self driving cars. Not because of the technology, the technology is there. The problem is that a robotic guide dog either has to pass on the information about the environment that the blind user needs non visually, so by tactile or auditory means, and or it has to guide the blind user. Intelligently, so it needs to understand it shouldn't pull 
the blind user somewhere, it shouldn't stop, it, it should somehow naturally react to the blind person's walking pattern. In reality, it needs to do both things and developing the interface between that guide dog and the user is really complicated and requires fundamental insights, which I'm afraid we just don't have at the moment. Of course, it will be developed, but it's harder than we think. When it is developed, it will be very useful for people like me who are not very much into dogs. But there's also a large group of people for whom the dog has a major social role. The dog also gives confidence and somebody who's very effective with her guide dog once told me, yeah, I just like to walk around with a dog. The fact it's a guide dog is just a good excuse to do so. And she's one of the most effective dog users I know. The bond with the dog is a really important factor in determining how effective it is. So even if there is a robotic guide dog, some people may still prefer the natural alternative, although in time, as the robot gets better, it will probably increasingly replace the dog. Also, because in the long term, I'm quite optimistic that there will be a lot of other technology which will increasingly enable blind people to function at the same level as sighted people and to stand out less. But that's a matter of time, and it's a matter of a lot of time, I'm afraid. Hello, Jonathan. It's Petra, guide dog user. The interesting thing about guide dogs is that they, even though they're trained to be friendly and they must be friendly, they are a deterrent to some people. And my guide dog has actually sensed when someone who did not belong and did not have good intention was following me. And she kept turning and putting her hair up, and he finally spoke and said, Would your dog, you know, can I come any closer? And I said, Sir, you can see her better than I can, and I wouldn't come any closer if I were you. All of mine have been German Shepherds, so they're a little bit of a deterrent in the first place, but I really kind of feel safe having the dog. The robot is intriguing, though. I admit that. It just needs to have a button you can press in an emergency and maybe a stun gun. That is a really good point, Petra. I do take some comfort from the fact that Bonnie is out there with a dog that might scare people off. So I, I really take that point on board. It's Matt Miller from Ohio. Oh, the great state of Ohio has been called for Matt Miller. He says, I was listening to your talk regarding the Sites Tech conference and wanted to comment on the trolley problem because I don't think this is a good comparison to self-driving cars. First, that thought experiment is based on there only being two choices, A or B. If a self-driving car rapidly approaches a situation, or suddenly there's a high chance of a person dying, then the car is going to run through hundreds or thousands of options and assign probabilities of injury to either the passenger's or other people on scene and make continuous choices for an optimum outcome. For example, a car could be approaching a bridge on a two-lane road when someone runs across the road while a truck is coming from the opposite direction. If in this situation, between the person and the guardrail, there is a space inches wider than the car, it can work to apply the optimal amount of braking while steadily steering towards the opening that avoids anybody getting injured. A human driver in this situation 
would have a very low chance of not either hitting the person driving off the bridge or swerving in front of the truck. I always think of the big picture when people start to talk about self-driving car safety. In 2018, there were over 36,000 people in vehicles and another 7,000 pedestrians and bicyclists killed by vehicles. If half the vehicles on the road were instantly swapped out for self-driving cars, and in this early stage they performed poorly by killing a person every week, then that poor performance would still save over 20,000 lives for the year. There are many issues still to be improved over some of these vehicles, such as getting a person to an entrance when a large unmapped parking lot is involved, dealing with poor weather, such as snow or flooding, and, of course, making sure these vehicles from all manufacturers provide accessibility. Another plus, a Waymo is not going to drive up, point a camera at your guide dog, and drive off. Oh, ain't that the truth, Matt? Ain't that the truth? I I like the way you think. Debbie Armstrong's back! And she says regarding robots versus guide dogs, there's a place for both. If you are a senior or disabled in a wheelchair, if you dislike dogs, or you simply tried and a dog didn't work out for you, I can see a robot guide giving you the safety and security you need. When I injured my knee and had to use a walker for five months, I wished I had a hands-free robot to guide and keep me safe. If such a device could be individually programmed for the end user, what a wonderful independence booster that could make. But I don't want to be the person who works out the bugs which will inevitably arise. Just wait until an over-the-air update clears its street-crossing smarts out of memory or bungles its onboard maps. Think of how many times your screen reader or operating system fails and you wouldn't want your guide to have that level of unreliability. Or think about how many hotkeys you must memorize to use your access technology. Hopefully, using the guide will be a bit more user-friendly. Occasionally, my dog does get distracted. But what if the robot gets a virus that makes it think squirrel chasing is preferable to guiding? At least I can convince my dog to return his attention to his work. Will malware infect the self-operating bots of our future? Let's also hope that nobody stops valuing the importance of learning to effectively travel with a cane. This skill is fundamental to everything else, no matter what mobility tool you eventually end up with. As a person working my seventh guide, I tell you that if I become too disabled to qualify for a guide beast, I'm going to continue to enjoy dogs as pets. That bond is something I never want to stop living with. I can't imagine giving up my golden retriever for a robot. But then again, before I tore that ACL, I couldn't imagine having to depend on a walker to keep me upright either. Now, thanks to my furry express, we can go everywhere independently again. I realize, however... This may not always be so. Hey, Jonathan, Mike Moran here. I want to thank you for bringing up the topic about dog guides. And are we coming to the end of the dog guide era? The answer for me is I don't know. 
I thought about this, and I have mixed feelings. You know, as we get older, our needs change. And when I was younger, I would walk from here to Brazil, and I'm in New Jersey. But as I've gotten older, I have more aches and pains, and I don't walk as much as I did at one time. Also, with the pandemic, I haven't traveled as much, and I'm sure that's true for many other people. Are younger people using their dogs as much as we did at one time? Now we have paratransit. So many people go from their house to the paratransit to their place of work or pleasure or whatever they're doing and get right back on the paratransit and come back home. And there's another thing that is going on, at least in my neck of the woods. Many people have newer cars. I have never seen so many new cars in my life. And some people have an objection to having a dog in their car, no matter how clean the dog is. There are times that I will just leave my dog home rather than have it be an issue when I'm traveling with my friends. Sometimes, let's face it, the car is full, so there's not a lot of room for the dog. I don't think that I could rely on a robot. And then I say to myself, well, supposing that was the only thing I had been exposed to, would I be comfortable? Right now, I enjoy the interpersonal relationship, if you will, that I have with my dog. This living creature and I can exchange love. We can communicate. I know what he is telling me. He knows what I need, and it's very symbiotic. I hope the guide dog era is not coming to an end. I think it's a beautiful relationship, and I think it enhances our lives on many levels, not just on a navigational level, but on a deep core level. I think, for me, it has taught me more about love, giving love, and receiving love. I know a robot is not going to love me unconditionally. The wonderful thing about a dog is you can come home and say, you know, I was very mean to 10 people today. And the dog just says, I don't care. I don't care. I love you. I love you anyway. It's a beautiful relationship. Jonathan Mosen, Mosen at Large Laurel Jean Walden has emailed in and says, Hi, Jonathan, before any more time lapses, I want to personally thank everyone around the world who has gone out of their way to advocate on behalf of the voting rights of all of us in the blindness community. I was 19 when I participated in the 1992 presidential election here in the United States. From that day on, I have always signed for my ballot and selected my chosen candidates. Back in 1992, in my rural, downstate, Illinois hometown, voters chose their candidates by using a type of stylus to mark a hole punch in the ballot card. Aha! Isn't that how we got the dimpled chads in Florida? Anyway, Laura continues, The ballot template was very easy to follow and remained stationary as I turned the pages and made my choices. From the voting booth next to mine, my mom read the ballot to me, naming the candidates as they related to the holes in the template. She read everything to me, 
always pausing for my verbal confirmation that I was oriented with each grouping of candidates. I voted in this way, with Mom's help, until 2008. Then we walked into our polling precinct to find that the punch card ballots had been replaced by those which required choices to be made by filling in the circle corresponding with the preferred candidate. My heart began to sink until a cheery lady, one of the poll workers, spoke up. Oh, I'm so glad you're here. We have a special machine for you to try out. That was my first experience using an adaptable voting machine. The audio description was extremely slow and cumbersome for this proficient JAWS user, but I would not choose to go back to voting with human assistance unless I had no other option. It is truly exhilarating to be able to cast one's vote independently. I've been voting here in South Carolina since 2012. Compared to many of the overwhelming experiences that listeners have shared, my little hiccups in the voting process seem more like a comedy of errors. Every time we vote, my best friend Audrey, a guide dog user, and I have to explain that we are capable of signing our names. We have to educate poll workers who erroneously insist that we need a visual ballot rather than the accessible audio ballot because we are visually impaired. Earlier this year, at the Democratic primary, I was greeted by a poll worker who very condescendingly asked, Do you know that you are at the Democratic primary election? I just smiled and said, Really? I thought this was the Golden Coral Restaurant. Meanwhile, Audrey was politely asking another polling worker to allow her and her guide dog to follow the worker to the voting machine. As guide dog Bernie stepped from behind the sign-in table and began to guide Audrey, the astonished poll worker exclaimed, Dog? Oh, great God, there's a dog! There's a dog! Then, when they finally got to the voting machine, the poll worker insisted that Audrey walk six feet past the voting machine in order to feel the table leg. Apparently, it was necessary that she thoroughly feel the table leg. When we call for information regarding accessible voting each year, we are always reminded that we can just drive our car up to the curbside voting area and we'll be allowed to use the machine with Braille on it. We never thought that we would take such a suggestion seriously until this election began to present so many challenges for us. Unlike many states, South Carolina does not offer the ADA mail-in ballot, so we knew that we would be best served to vote absentee in person. Thanks to our local association for the blind and an organization called Evolve, we were informed that volunteers would be available to drive us to our area's absentee voting location. This past Wednesday, October the 28th, our volunteer driver, Caitlin, drove us and described the line of people just waiting to get into the building. As it turned out, the curbside voting line was only a couple of cars deep so we opted to vote curbside. Again, we had to educate our poll workers that, yes, we can sign our names. We each brought our own headphones, and neither of our poll workers knew that headphones needed to be plugged into the machines. My keypad was presented to me upside down, and Audrey's was sideways. I had to show my poll worker that the keypad was attached to the machine with Velcro, 
and could be removed from the side of the machine for easier access. Meanwhile, Audrey had to explain to her poll worker that she couldn't see the big blue button that he was directing her to press on her keypad. Finally, we were able to orient ourselves with our keypads and the ballot and cast our votes independently. We were at the location for around 90 minutes. We've certainly come a long way, but there is still so much work to be done. The ADA mail-in ballots need to be adopted nationwide. Blind people need to be consulted and brought in to help teach sensitivity and awareness to poll workers so that we don't have to offer impromptu crash courses on election day. Still, especially in these times, it is imperative that we vote however we choose to do so. Blessings and stay safe, y'all, says Laurel Jean. Thank you, Laurel. Sometimes it does get a bit exhausting feeling like you have to educate the world, right? Now, if people are voting in person in the United States over the next little while and they would like to tell us about their experiences, was it absolutely smooth? Did you have any issues from an accessibility perspective? Do feel free to get those reports into us and we will feature them next week. Hi, Jonathan. It's me, Thompson, here. I just want to tell you about a very, very scary thing that happened to me over the weekend a message that I got on my Apple Watch. So I went to my bed on the Saturday night after I'd listened to you. Well, I tried to get to sleep, but I could, my heart was going really fast. I could feel it beating through my ribs, and I thought, this is a weird thing. This is palpitations, and it took ages to get to sleep. Finally got to sleep, and then on Sunday, Ray managed to set the sonar system up okay. But all during the day, I could feel my heart racing, and he took my blood pressure because he's got a blood pressure monitor and it kept saying it was 115, 100 and something, 100 and something. But anyway, on the Monday morning, I woke up and I looked at my heart rate and while I'd been sleeping, it said it was 168 beats per minute. And I thought, oh no, this isn't good. I'm going to phone the doctor. So I phoned to make an appointment with the doctor. And then but just after I'd phoned to make the appointment, I got this weird message on my watch saying, you could have atrial or atrial, I don't know how it's pronounced, fibrillation. If you have not been diagnosed with this, please see your doctor. That really freaked me out. They're just doing telephone appointments just now because of COVID. So the doctor phoned me and got me down to do a heart trace and a blood test. So the heart trace didn't show any any atrial fibrillation, but I'm glad I got that sorted. I got the blood test and I got the results back on Wednesday and she wants me to go and do a fasting test, which I will go on Monday and let you know what happened. But it was very scary getting that on my, on my watch, that atrial fibrillation thing, and seeing my heartbeat was 168 beats when I was sleeping. Then the other thing I've got to tell you is that Ray and I went down to get the subwoofer because I decided to buy it and it was came in on Thursday and we went to get it and then on the way back to the house he carried it from the car to the house and he tripped on the bottom step outside at the path and the, he went flying and the subwoofer went flying and hit the concrete with an almighty crash and Ray's leg went from under him and he hit his head on the step 
and I pulled him up and thank goodness he hadn't broken anything. He was obviously quite badly bruised. And then we went back into the house and did he not drop it again because he climbed over the threshold and his wrist must have had a lot of pain in his wrist and just he just dropped the whole thing again. And I said, oh, you've broken my speaker. And he said, oh, what about my jacket? I said, who cares about your jacket? So anyway, we unpacked the speaker and there was not a mark on it and it's playing fine. I mean, there was loads of polystyrene on it. It could have been worse. He could have broken his leg or anything, but he did. He he, he really he fell. All his le- these boxes are very heavy. Oh dear me, what a week! Oh my word! You do lead an exciting life, me. I am very pleased that the Apple Watch alerted you to that issue and that you were able to get it looked at. There are some really quite moving stories in the tech press about people who have had their lives saved because of the Apple Watch. Pretty cool to have this thing on our wrist, looking after our best interests, isn't it? And I discovered, actually, that if you put the heart rate complication on the sundial top left slot of your infograph watch face, it actually updates in real time. For example, if I just go in here, see, it says... I guess I'm at 80 BPM because I'm just living the dream and doing all the stuff that gets done in the show, so my heart rate's a bit up there. And right there on the watch face, it shows me that I'm at 80 BPM. I reckon that is a really cool feature to have that heart rate updating in real time. Now, regarding the Sonos Sub, it is a really heavy beast. I remember Richard and I getting it home. It is not light, that thing. So I'd urge anybody to be careful with carrying it. You might want to get a delivery person to bring those things in in future, May. Poor Ray, I hope he's doing okay. You know, things are repairable or at worst replaceable, but people are not replaceable, are they? So we've got to look after Ray. But I'm also interested to hear what you think of the Sonos. I mean, you've got your Sonos beam set up and you went out and you bought a sub. So what's it like? I'm sure that people would be interested to hear what you make of the Sonos as a new user. And it's time once again for a Bonnie Bulletin, this one of anniversaries. Yeah, hi guys. Yep, a Bonnie Bulletin of anniversaries. Yes. Because it is the 90th birthday, in the United States anyway, of someone who you have had fascination with and respect for over these years. Who is that? Michael Collins. My, oh, that's right. He was born on Halloween. He's 90. 90. 90. Wow. Incredible, wow. eh? How old's yeah. Buzz Aldrin? Not much far behind him. Michael Collins for all the whippersnappers who don't know. He was he was left up there in the big module while Neil and Buzz went down and landed on, on the, the moon. moon. Yeah. I guess Buzz Aldrin's probably not too far behind him. Did Michael Collins eventually get to the moon itself? No, he That's didn't. That's terrible, isn't no, it? No, it is terrible. You know, they should have given him a go on the moon, yeah, I reckon. they should send him again or send him up on the space shuttle like they did John Glenn. I don't think, I mean, 90 might be pushing it a bit, but so John Glenn is still the oldest dude in space, isn't he? Yeah, in his 70s. 77. W, John Glenn. (laughs) And one of the other crew members said, I did a report on you when I was a kid. Oh, well, there you go. Well, happy birthday, uh, Mike. I'm sure he's listening to the the show. So, uh, yeah, we, we love you. And that's all very good. Also, it is the 40th anniversary 
of my great tragic appendectomy. Mm. It's a terrible cautionary tale, I tell you. I was studying for my theory of music exam, which was taking place on Friday, the 31st of October, 1982. And so I got up on Friday morning and I thought, whoa, I'm in a lot of pain, man. I'm in a lot of pain. And I went to anybody who would listen, parentals, teachers, anyone. And I said, I'm in a lot of pain, man. Because I was only like, whatever, 11. And they said, you're nervous because you're doing your theory of music exam. So I went in and I did this theory of music exam with the Royal Schools of Music. Mm-hmm. Sounds very sort of pretentious, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does. Bent over double with pain. And I got 95. Wow. For some reason, they mark you out of 99. I don't know why. I got 95 out of 99 Cool. for the exam. I found out subsequently. So then when I kind of managed to get up in absolute agony and went out again, I said, I can't done the exam now and I'm still in pain, man. Hmm. So they rushed me to the doctor, to Dr. Young, the family doctor, uh, who probably should have been rebranded Dr. Old by then. And he said, we'd better get this lad to the hospital at once. And they rushed me into the emergency theater and um, my appendix was just about to burst. So that was a very close run thing. Ooh, dear. Ooh, that was painful. That was. At least it's gone now. 40 years ago. And, well, it is gone now. Yes, I have got no appendix. I may well have an index and a prologue and a synopsis, but I do not have an appendix. Also, seven years ago today, you became a uh, New Zealand, what, what, what's the word? Not not New Zealand resident in the Visitor. true sense of the term, but you arrived in New Zealand. Yes, I migrated to these shores. You did. Yeah. And, the sh- and the shores are better off as a yeah, result. Yeah, I hope so. Se- seven, <laughs> seven years, years it's yeah. amazing, isn't it? It seems possible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Where does the time go? I know. I just want to catch up on a few things. Petra has also been in touch and wanted to know, tell us again what LIDAR is. LIDAR stands for Light Detection, hang on a second, stands for Light Detection and Ranging. That doesn't sound like it stands for light. Oh, maybe it does. Yes, Light Detection and Ranging. So the the L-I stands for Light Mm. Detection and Raging. Raging. LIDAR. Uh, It's a remote sensing method that uses light in the form of a pulsed laser pew, pew, mm. um, to measure ranges, um, variable distances to the Earth. And uh, so that's how they're doing what they're doing with this uh, augmented social, reality stuff. and Social yeah. distancing. Yes, yes. I'm now on the fence. Before I was definitely in the, no, I'm going to sit out the iPhone 12 camp. Now I'm on the, oh, man, <laughs> this is getting tempting camp. Hmm. I guess a, just wait. Got a few days to think about yeah, it. Yeah, absolutely. Now, of course, I will be hopefully putting together a review of the APH Mantis. I hope for next week's show. But um, what what what's your impressions of it? I so? really like it. It's kind of what I've been waiting for—a hybrid between a note taker and a braille display. She keeps capturing it and taking it away from me. I'm no, trying to get work done, and all of a sudden, it. she says, "I want to try reading this book on it." Yeah, I was. I downloaded a book. That was pretty good. I, I, I do like Voice Dream Reader, but it is sort of a pain in the butt to read with a Braille display. 
See, I disagree with that. Why do you think it's a pain in the butt to read with a browser? I don't know. It just sometimes is difficult when you download a book that because you have to get past all this other stuff, you know, like um, select text and. Yes, I I understand that. It would be interesting if Apple could develop some sort of way to lock you into the read edit control. Yeah, yeah. Um, that would be that would be good. I I wonder how they could do that. Some yeah. sort of mode that locks you into the. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's good. It's it's certainly doable, but mm. it's. Um, I understand why it looks a yeah. little cluttered. It is cluttered. Yeah, I get yeah. that. I do get that completely. So you like the mantis? I do like the mantis. I think it's. I keep expecting it to talk though. Yeah, it's interesting. <laughs> it, it looks like a. It looks like a machine that's going to talk. Yeah, doesn't it, it doesn't. It, it, it so, does, yeah, it, it does, does make not. little sounds, but um, um, yeah, I really like it. I like the editor feature on it. Mm-hmm. Well, there you go. So it gets the official thumbs up from Bonnie Modem. Uh, and I'll, I'll give my thoughts on it next week. Um, I'm, I'm going to do my best to demonstrate it and describe it quite fully. Um, do you care to make any predictions for the forthcoming election in the United States, which like every election is apparently the most important election of our lifetimes? Yeah, every election is the most yeah. important. I have no idea. I really <laughs> don't know it. I I predict that no one will be happy. Maybe that's a good thing. Well, somebody's got it. I mean, look, I the one thing I seriously do hope is that when we come on the show next week, we're not um, seeing lots of America in absolute turmoil and chaos. Yeah, and I mean, I'm no, really, no matter who really wins. Are. There's going to be unrest. It doesn't uh, matter whether it's Biden, whether it's Trump. It's, 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 yeah, that's just not, people aren't going to be happy. Mm, so yeah. just, that's my prediction. I, um, yeah. I mean, we, we live in very interesting times because of the, shall we say, um, unpredictability of, uh, some of the people involved. So I, I, so but, I honestly, don't know. I mean, yeah. I could be surprised. It could be. I mean, we just, it's like a horse race. We have a favorite, but favorites can be beaten. We we saw that four years ago. Um, well, I've yeah. Seen I mean, and, and only because of a quirk of the electoral yeah. system, right? I mean, yeah. eh, anyway, but yes, it's going to be interesting. And I'm going to be sitting here and I'm going to have CNN and MSNBC, maybe the BBC, on separate faders of my mixer, and I'm going to have Twitter open. I'm going to be fading the mixers up and down, and mm-hmm. oh my word, I I'm going to be into it. I'm into just it. glad I'm, it's going to be over because that's all we've heard about for the past four years. So, and then probably whoever wins will hear for the next four years why the other one didn't win or why that one won, and you know, it's just it's an ongoing cycle. So yes, but I mean, even if. Looking at it as objectively as one can, I think one of the real risks is that if Biden does win, which is my personal preference, and nobody's surprised to hear that, if if Biden does win, um, it, it, there's been a tradition in the American presidency that actually goes all the way back to George Washington. You may have heard of him, mm-hmm. where once a president leaves office, they they kind of just take a take a break from public life. Yeah, I think what might happen is that uh, if the polls in those battleground states hold and Biden is victorious, whether we find that out on the night or sometime down the track and Trump does leave office, he may almost behave like a president in exile. Uh, and and that, that's a very different dynamic mm-hmm. for the United States to get used to. Well, um, Congra- congratulations on seven years being in New Zealand. No, it's hard to believe. Seven if you years. had to pick one thing, 
if somebody said to you, what's the biggest contrast you notice between living in America and living in New Zealand? Could you pick one thing? That my hour ride commute on the bus is boring. Isn't that a good thing? It's a good thing, but it's definitely a big contrast because my rides on the subway every morning were always entertaining. I was expecting you to say something like, you know, the different side of the road or, you know, Celsius and Fahrenheit. Or you know, that, that the side of the road has never even – I guess the biggest thing I had to get used to was sitting in the driver's seat. Yeah. That, when that I go to the States, weird. I feel the same way. And, you know, yeah. you get into the front seat of someone's vehicle and I instantly think, dude, I'm, I'm, I'm driving at the moment. I'm driving. And I've never been – motion sick until i moved to new zealand oh, wow. sometimes on the buses when especially when they're coming down through here because the roads are quite turny and twisty and hilly mm. and i don't know whether sitting in the driver's seat has kind of made me a little ill when i first moved here with some of these taxi drivers i think another contrast is cafes here have what they call the cabinet food i don't even know what the equivalent to that would be in the u.s maybe i don't know but you you can't get the variety. You, the food is very different in cafes here. Mm. Where you, and and I've heard other Americans talk about the only place you can really get quote sandwiches is Subway. But, you know, like we would call an American sandwich. Yeah, they make it. You know. Yeah, yeah, and then then we find out that Subway's been pinged for all the sugar they're putting, <laughs> yeah, in, their putting in their bread. Yeah. If, so if you if you are trying to live the low carb dream, yeah, then stay away mm -hmm. from the Subway. That's what I can tell you. Um, speaking of low carb, I'm just going to go back into the Twitter while we're going through things. Caroline was talking about low carb, mm -hmm. and she said, the results I've been getting from keto are amazing. My A1C has dropped from 10.3 to 7.3. I'm down 14 pounds, and I'm completely off my insulin. Okay. See, I mean, that's exactly mm -hmm. right. I mean, you can't argue with soup no. like that. She says that she is blogging her keto experiences and linking to uh, equipment and recipes. Cool. And the URL is kittytech.org slash keto. I guess another contrast is that I had to get used to is it's a much slower pace of life. I asked you one thing. Now you're coming up with no, a litany. Because you didn't like my the bus ride was boring because it wasn't entertaining. No, no, but it's fine. I mean, it's, <laughs> if that's what you notice, that's what you notice. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, best seven years of my life, mate, that yeah. I can tell you. Best seven years of mine, too. Well, that's all right then. <laughs> okay. Okay. Goodbye. Bye. <laughs> To contribute to Mosin at Large, you can email Jonathan, that's J-O-N-A-T-H-A-N, at mushroomfm.com by writing something down or attaching an audio file. Or you can call our listener line. It's a U.S. number, 864-60-MOSIN. That's 864-606-6736. Mosin at Large.